Now, Father, we come to you once again to look into the book of John, the gospel of John, and to learn wonderful things that you have for your people this morning. Oh, Father, I pray that you would reveal the excellencies of Christ, the excellencies of your plan for our lives, and your call upon us that we would be faithful to you and know the joy of being co-laborers with Christ. Father, be glorified in this hour now in each of these topics that we talk about this morning. May they benefit your people and strengthen us and edify us and change us, we pray, for your glory and for our own great joy, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, talking about the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. And this has been a a great text. This will be the last week we look at this. Um, What we learn from this text, as we've studied the story of Jesus turning water into wine, we've learned about the glory of an abundantly generous God. He is no stingy Savior. He loves to give good gifts to his people and to rescue us when we are in need. He loves to do it. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us. And he cares for us like a a tender, godly father cares for his children. And some of you have asked some really astute questions this Uh, this past Sunday after each service and during the week. And I'm going to do something a little bit different this week because I felt like both of those sets of questions were valid enough for me to bring them before you. Enough people have been asking, I think, that that I need to spend a little bit of time on this. And so rather than spending our entire time expositing the text, as I usually do, we'll get to that in a few minutes, But what I want to do right now is answer those questions because I think they'll be a benefit to us all. The first question had to do with a very practical issue of whether it was, whether it is sin to drink alcohol. You say, well, where did that question come from? Well, I think this question has come up because in the past two weeks I've emphasized that uh, the wine in Jesus' day was not like the wine that is for sale down at your local grocery store here in Texas. Um... Because the wine in Jesus' day, all of the critical scholars of that time, the historical scholars that write about this, pretty much agree that the wine that was commonly used was diluted, one parts wine, three parts water. So it was more like a soft drink than uh, an alcoholic beverage. And I've said that now, this is my third time to say that. And the question has come up, why are we emphasizing that point? Um, Does Pastor Dan, do the elders believe that drinking alcohol is sinful? And let me just answer that uh, very bluntly up front by saying the answer to that question is no. We don't think that drinking alcohol is inherently sinful. There are some things in this life that are inherently sinful. Committing adultery, looking at pornography, those are inherently sinful. Stealing, murder, Some other things that you could name are inherently sinful. There are other things in our lives that could become sin if we don't treat them right and approach them in a godly manner, a biblical manner. But alcohol is not something that is sinful inherently. Um, First, I I really wanted to emphasize 
this point for the obvious reason that the idea of drinking wine, when we look at, when we look at the story of Jesus at the wedding at Cana of Galilee, I mean, here's another thing that all scholars agree on, that the, that the weddings generally lasted a week, and if they, were, if they were for a king and queen or someone who was rich, two weeks. And I mean, they were drinking wine all the time. If you don't understand that the wine was different back then, and you're going to come to an obvious conclusion, there was something really bad going on here. These people were drinking wine all the time, and the effects of that are obvious. Not only that, but you might come away with the impression that Jesus was giving credence to that kind of behavior. And so I just thought it was important for you to understand that there's a difference between that wine and our wine. Secondly, I'm also very aware that there are people, typically young people, who are always looking for some means of justifying their drinking of alcohol. And if you could grab a text like this and say, look, they drank, week, they drank wine all week long, then that might inappropriately justify your drinking uh, alcohol all spring break long. And that would be bad. And, and I think inappropriate because, once again, there's something that the text doesn't say, but we know historically that the wine in Jesus' day was not the same wine that we drink today. So let me make this plain. I have never taught, nor have I ever believed, that drinking alcohol was inherently sinful. It's not what goes into a man, Jesus says, that defiles him. It's what comes out of a man that defiles him. And Jesus has a whole list there of uh, sexual sins and other sins that come out of a man. And the point of it is this. Sin and righteousness are always matters of the what? The heart. Sin and righteousness are always a matter of the heart. As I said, there are some things that are inherently sinful, yes. But regardless of what sin it is, the essence of it is something that is happening in your heart, not something that you put in your mouth. Now, there's nothing intrinsically wrong about drinking alcohol, but here's the qualifiers, the biblical qualifiers that you need to keep in mind. If you exercise that liberty in a manner that causes a brother to stumble, just think back on our study of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. Uh, if, you, if you exercise that liberty in a manner that causes another brother to stumble, number one, or if you drink in violation of your own conscience, you may have a weak conscience, but if you drink in violation to your own conscience, that's also sin. And if your drinking causes you to get drunk, if any one of those three are true, then it is sin for you. And that's, uh, that's the reason why my wife and I, for as long as we have known each other, have uh, resolved to never, never put our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now understand, ministry context. We understand that uh, in ministry, I live in a fishbowl. Everybody knows what's happening with my kids and my wife and my home. They know when I'm sick. They know when I'm happy. They know when I'm not happy. They know when my hair turns gray or whatever. I don't know when that happened, but it apparently it's happened. Um, you, know, every, you know, they're watching all the time. And I, so I know this. If I were to ever exercise that liberty, it would cause somebody to stumble. That ain't going to happen. It's just not going to happen. And so we have put these parameters in our own lives for the sake of the body of Christ. You have to determine for yourself 
uh, whether or not drinking alcohol in any way, shape, or form is appropriate for you. There'll be no judgment from me unless it crosses the line clearly into sin. Okay, we clear on that now? Good. And, and again, I've raised the issue not because there was a question or two, but because there seems, uh, this seems to be a question that's been repeated here in the last year or so, and I thought this was a perfect opportunity for me to, uh, to jump on this and, and just make our position clear on this. Now, the second question that I heard last week after the services, and there were several people who asked similar questions, had to do with the possibility of symbolism regarding the six jars that were associated with this miracle. Let's read the text. We're starting with verse 1 of chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 to 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, that is to the servants, fill the water pots with water. And so they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And so they took it to him. Let's just stop there. Here John is explaining the details of what happened in this, the first of Jesus' miracles. Now concerning, concerning the water pots, there's been much speculation. Why were there six pots? What's the significance of them being empty? Um, why was John so careful to explain that these water pots were for the Jewish custom of purification? And those are good questions. If you're going to do Bible study, you should ask you should make observations and ask questions. But just be careful when your questions lead you down the wrong trail that you're not so proud that you can't backtrack. Um, one author points out that the things the Apostle John emphasizes here in, in his gospel is uh, one of the elements of his gospel is a, a focus on the failure of Judaism to bring salvation to his people. In other words, the system of Judaism was broken. The sacrifices and the feast days and the Sabbath law and all of that were intended by God to take you somewhere. But it had failed, and it was, it was certainly a, an abysmal failure in Jesus' time because by the time he came on the scene, Judaism was a dead husk. The heart and life of it were gone. When Jesus came, he was determined, this view says, to set aside the old broken system and replace it with a better, a better hope, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' day, one author writes, Judaism still existed as a religious system, but it ministered no comfort to the heart. It had degenerated into a cold, mechanical routine, utterly destitute of joy in God. Now, that's important not only for them, but for us as we encounter any religious system that doesn't bring you to the gospel. The direct, probably, in my opinion, the most direct parallel between Judaism and a system in our day is Catholicism. In fact, Catholicism, there would be no system of Catholicism if it weren't for Judaism. The parallels are almost one for one. From the clothing to the rituals, there's a, a kind of a, 
in each point, a little bit of a twist on each one of these, but even the sacrifices, the Catholic Church views the uh, taking of the Mass every day, that the, the cracker is not just a cracker, it is the host that is being sacrificed, it is Christ's body being sacrificed day after day after day, all based on Judaism, all based on that old broken system. And there is a view that says one of the key themes throughout the book of John is this theme of Jesus pushing aside the old and bringing in the new. And to a degree, I agree with, uh, with this perspective, and it certainly serves as one of the threads that is weaved through the Gospel of John beginning from beginning to end. For example, in John chapter 1, you remember in the prologue, John points out uh, that when the Word came, when the Word was made flesh, uh, verse 11 says, just cast your eyes a little bit to the left there, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Who is his own? The Jewish people wrapped up in this system, the religious system of Judaism. They rejected him. He didn't fit their system. And it wasn't that there was a problem with Christ. The problem was the system was broke. It wasn't at all anymore what God intended for it to be. In chapter 2, we'll see this next week, Jesus cleansing the temple, not with soap and water, but with a cat of nine tails. He's a very angry man that day, and we're going to look at that beginning next week. But what was his cleansing of the temple all about? Well, we'll see that next week, but one of the themes, again, that we see again and again in the book of John is is Jesus dealing with that broken system that had become so foul in in the nostrils of God. In this case, Judaism had converted God's house of prayer into a profit-making bazaar. Now, some believe that there may be a veiled allusion to this same theme here in the story of the water turned to wine. It could be that John pointed out that the pots were for the Jewish custom of purification because he wanted us once again to see the failure of Judaism in the symbol of empty pots and the fact that Jesus offers something better. But then again, then again, the pots may be in this story because they were pots. And it might be that their size was, was described to us and their numbers so that we would understand the magnitude of the miracle. This wasn't Jesus making a cup of wine. It wasn't Jesus making a couple bottles of wine. It was Jesus t- transforming between 120 and 180 gallons of water into wine. And the significance of that, as we saw last week, is that this was an extravagant gift that he would have left, not just for the people to drink at the end of the feast. The feast was probably close to the end anyway. But rather, an extravagant gift to this young couple, symbolizing the blessing of God as described in the Old Testament. Beautiful, extravagant gift, and nobody even knew he did it. He just did it because he loved them. That's the message of the text. And so I would just exhort us this morning, beloved, to use caution whenever you're reading a commentary or anything that's explaining a text of Scripture, and they try to allegorize or spiritualize every aspect 
of that story. This is especially true in narratives, Old Testament and New Testament stories. In fact, uh, over the years, boy, I've read some crazy stuff. Uh, People who assign a spiritual notion or even a doctrine to every aspect of the Old Testament tabernacle. You remember the tabernacle? It was a, a tent that they carried around with them in the desert. They set it up. The Shekinah glory would come down. The presence of God would come down. Moses would meet with them there. But listen, there are some interpreters of Scripture who assign meaning to every peg, every rope, every bar, every ring, every curtain, every utensil. Just everything has meaning. And I would just say, wow, be cautious of that. Because if you can spiritualize anything in the text, then you can make that text say anything you want it to say. And that's dangerous. And it happens in pulpits all across this country, and it's happening right now. Beloved, it doesn't have to happen. It doesn't have to happen, and it shouldn't happen. Um, here's an example of that, and I won't tell you this This. I was going to say brother. I'm not sure he's a brother, but there's a, uh, a famous preacher in the Dallas-Fort Worth area who um, uh, just classic misuse of a text of Scripture taken from Isaiah, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. I think I've told you about this before. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Now, what he's done is he's, he's taken that phrase. He built a whole sermon on it, and he got, this, he got his whole congregation that consists of thousands of people to chant something in response to him each time he went there. And, and, but this is the way he said it, not let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And, and actually in the text, it's let the redeemed of the Lord say this, and then he tells you what the redeemed of the Lord should say. But in the King James, it says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Now, he would say it like this, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And this is how he applied it. When Satan comes and he's bringing you a temptation to lust, you look at that old devil and you say, so? What? Well, is he preaching the word? I mean, he's taking it out of the scriptures. He isn't saying anything more than what's there. And the masses believe. And they adopt a whole philosophy of spiritual warfare that Satan will run away if you just say, so? And there he goes. Listen, beloved, that's just nonsense. That is just nonsense. And I could, I could tell you story after story after story of, of people just taking the Scriptures and abusing them to make it say what they want it to say. Now, I would exhort us this morning to be cautious about reading interpretations of Scripture like this that rely heavily on allegorizing and spiritualizing. Uh, uh, for example, one author suggests of this particular passage um, that the importance, there's a, there's a tremendous importance of there being six water pots. Six. And this is, this is, his, uh, this is his interpretation of this passage. Um, that there were six in number because that is the number of man. And the reason it's the number of man is because man was created on the sixth day in Genesis. And in Revelation, it is once again called the number of man, and it is given to the Antichrist. His number is 666. You following this? I'm not either. Furthermore, (laughs) the number of perfection is seven. 
So whatever six symbolizes, it's obviously not perfection, therefore it is imperfect. The water bottles, the water jars, uh, are, are a representation of imperfect Judaism because there were six. So clearly, John was throwing, showing us the imperfection of that old system. The pots were empty, which shows us that God was no longer in that old religious system. The fact that they were made of stone, not silver, which speaks of redemption, nor gold, which tells us of divine glory, but of stone, it symbolizes the worthlessness of the old system, and on and on and on it goes. The water symbolizes the word of God. I mean, it's just a symbol on everything. Once again, let me just plead with you. This is, this is how so many people go to Scripture. Or they'll read a verse of Scripture, and they'll take it out of context like that, and they'll take it as a personal revelation from God. And God told me this. I was reading the word, the word of God this morning, and he, gave me, he, he told me I could have a Christmas tree this year or not. He could tell me I could, I, would, I could drink a Coke today or not. He told me whatever, I should marry this girl and not that one. Oh, beloved, God didn't tell you any of that stuff. I'm just telling you. You can't get that from his word. And frankly, apart from the word of God, interpreted correctly, the Holy Spirit doesn't speak. Once again, let me plead with you, don't let that... Uh, Don't do this kind of thing to the text of Scripture. And here's why. In the vast majority of cases, the meaning of the text of Scripture will become plain simply by reading it in context and asking yourself some very simple questions. This is what I do when I study the Word of God. Question number one, what does this text say about God? Question number two, what does this text say about man, his sinfulness, his need? What does it say about redemption? What does it say about sanctification? What does it say about um, my need relative as being a parent or being, uh, being a, a, a husband, father? Just be careful that you don't jump there. Start with the big questions. What does it say about God? Read it in its context and ask these questions. And you know what? Nine times out of ten, you'll come up with the right interpretation. And let me give you another axiom to remember. The, interpret, the correct interpretation of the Scriptures is the Scriptures. The right interpretation of the text is the text. And so if you're listening or reading someone who's spiritualizing everything in the text, then find someone else to read. It's dangerous. It may feel spiritual, it may feel enlightened, but it's dangerous. Now, I wanted to spend... One more week, we're going to shift over here back to our text again, okay? Uh, I wanted to spend one more week on this text of Scripture um, because I just think that, that there's, some, there's one more thing here that I want you to see. Um, John makes an observation in this text. John makes an observation that I think will be in, tremendously encouraging and inspiring to us and, and I, don't, I don't approach this text looking for the inspiring and the encouraging, but it's here. And so I want to share it with you this morning. Let's, let's just refresh a little bit on the context. We've already read the text. Let's refresh a little bit on the context. Jesus is here at the wedding with his five disciples. He only has five at this point. 
They're at the wedding at Cana of Galilee, and toward the end of the week of feasting, Mary comes to Jesus and reveals to him that the wedding party is running out of wine, or they have run out of wine. At the very least, this is going to be a catastrophic embarrassment to the bride and groom and may very well end up in a lawsuit between the bride's family and the groom's family because the groom's family was legally responsible for providing the wine. But what could be done? This is probably a poor couple, else they would have had enough wine to begin with. Um, Even if they could have found a place to supply the wine, they probably couldn't have afforded it. And so what's to be done? No available answer. And Mary comes to Jesus, perhaps before any of the guests know, certainly before the head waiter knows, and he tells them of the situation. Jesus steps in and almost invisibly rescues the situation before any of the guests even know what's going on. It's an amazing story. An amazing portrait of Christ. Now, here's my question. How did Jesus accomplish this miracle? I don't mean, I'm not saying how do you do miracles. God does miracles, that's how. Um, But how did Jesus pull this off? What did he do? What, What did he do in relation to this miracle? Well, there were these six stone water pots that were there, which are normally used for the Jewish custom of purification. And so here's what Jesus did. Without ever getting up, never waved his arms, no abracadabra, no magic words, no flashy anything, he simply, perhaps quietly, instructs the servants to fill the pots with water and to take some to the head waiter. Now let's pick this story up in verse 9. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew The head waiter called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and then when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until last. Now, last week, I went out of my way to to stress the subtlety of this Jesus' first miracle. This was not Jesus' hour to be glorified. This was not a time to make a big show out of things. He didn't want want to, to attract the crowd. And he did a good job, frankly, at keeping all of this on the down low. Nobody knew it was happening. Now think about it. Who knew, even after the fact, who knew that this miracle had taken place? Mary didn't know. The guest didn't know. The head waiter didn't even know. That's clear. He he has no idea where it came from. So who knew? Well, look at verse 11. This beginning of of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So the disciples knew. They found out about it shortly after it all took place. The disciples knew. But there's one more group of people in this story who knew what happened before anyone else did, even before the disciples knew. Who was that? Well, in order to get there, we just have to, we just have to read the text clearly and not rush past everything. Here's what we learn. Um, John tells us about a group of people in this story that knew what happened before anybody else did. 
And John specifically wants us to know who they are. In fact, he wants us to know it so much so that he kind of puts the brakes on the story. He stops telling the story and he puts this parenthetical statement in. And this is what it reads. Look at verse 9 again. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had, um, which had become wine and did not know where it came from. Now look in the parentheses. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The servants knew. <laughs> I love that. I remember I stumbled across this a couple of years ago. And I just went around telling everybody in the office about it. The servants knew. Now, there's, a, there's an old axiom uh, in, it comes from England that, uh, that is this. The maids always know. <laughs> the maids know all. Well, how can that be? I mean, the idea here is that even though the maids occupied, uh, occupied a low station in the social order, yet their duties required them to be in every room of the house, every closet, every pantry, every nook and every cranny. And as they did, they learned, learned detailed information, some of it private information about the occupiers of that house that not even other people at the top of society would have known. And couldn't know, or there'd be scandals sometimes. But the, the maids always know. Why? Because they have free reign of the house. They're behind the scenes. They're under tables and over tables and under the chairs and in the closets and in the pantries. They're everywhere. And because of that, they were privy to important things that others would not know. The servants here, no doubt, were the lowliest people at the wedding, Their job was to serve the guest, to do the menial jobs, to set up, clean up, and shut up. Their presence was necessary only for the purpose of custodial services. Nevertheless, these were the people who were the first to know that Jesus had performed a miracle. In fact, this is the astounding part. In fact, they had been the very ones that Jesus used to bring it up. The miracle happened in their own hands. And they didn't even know it. Until it happened. They had been the ones. I mean, how is it that the servants get to be the privileged ones? Answer? They had been the ones that Jesus told to bring the 180 gallons of water. They had to haul the water. You want to know how many gallons, what's, what, what's 180 gallons look like? We did some calculating in the office this week relative to the baptistry that we had set up here yes, uh, last Sunday. If you take about half the water out of the baptistry, I mean, there's a ton of water, I mean literally a ton of water in there. Maybe more than a ton, you engineers can tell me later. But uh, an awful lot of water in there. Take about half of it out, about 180 gallons. Fill that thing up about halfway, 180 gallons. I mean, we're talking about a massive amount of water, a lot of water. And you know what? The servants were the ones who had to carry all that water. And they were the ones who, 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 um, who carried a sample of the water turned into wine to the head waiter. And they were the ones 
who were standing there with the head waiter when he commended the bridegroom on how good the wine was. The text is very clear. It says, the head waiter, quote, did not know where it came from, parentheses, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. So what does this have to do with you and me? Let me just see your eyes for a minute. What does this have to do with you and me? This is what it has to do with us. We are the servants. We are the servants. We're not even elevated to the position of disciple. We are the servants. Think about it, beloved. In the case the cases in which God performs extraordinary works of grace in this world all by himself kind of rare. Kind of rare. When God just does something out of heaven, bypassing all people and performs some some amazing work of grace, even the salvation of a lost person, very, very rare. Very rare that someone who knew nothing about the gospel will pick up the word of God, read it, and get saved. Normally, God chooses to use the faithful labor of ordinary people to accomplish his glorious purposes. You don't have to be anybody to see God do something great through your life, something that brings him glory, something that helps another person, and something that fills you with joy. I mean, who were these guys? Servants? What were their names? We don't know. Where'd they come from? We're not told. Did they know Jesus was going to perform this miracle? Not a chance. But what did they do? They simply obeyed the instructions of the Lord to haul the water. Just haul the water. But it was while they were faithfully obeying the Lord in this menial task that they received the exclusive privilege of being the first to know that Jesus had done a miracle. And even the greater privilege to know that he had done it through their very hands. That's amazing. That's amazing. Beloved, What a parable this is of the privilege of being a faithful servant of the Lord. We never know what he's planning to do next, do we? I mean, I counsel usually three times a week. It takes a lot of work, and and sometimes a heavy load to carry on top of everything else. And we never know what God's doing in a person's life. Never know. They come in with problems. Now, how many times a couple has come in with problems, they tell me their story, and, and I go, you need a counselor. <laughs> oh, that's what I'm here for. Um, just massive problems. God, what, what do we do with this? Okay, that's all I've got right here. Lord, do what you do. Do what you do. And you just start stumbling through, giving texts, giving exhortations, giving homework, come back next week, let's talk some more, let's pray some more, here's some other things in the scriptures that you should know, memorize this, meditate on this, do these things in obedience to that, pray, come back next week, let's do it again, and you know it can be exhausting. 
I can't tell you how many times God just totally unexpectedly stepped into that and did something almost miraculous. And I was there to see it. I can't tell you how many times after preaching a message here, somebody will get saved and I don't know about it. Six months, it's usually a six month period before I hear about it. Six months goes along and that person will come to me and they'll say, Pastor, I need to talk to you. My life has been transformed. I say, really, what happened? And um, they say, remember that, remember that Sunday when you said, and they quote it, and I go, no. <laughs> I don't even remember saying that. Yeah, that was it. I'll never forget it. I know what date it was. I know what message it was. And this is what you said. And God used that to crack my heart open and lay me bare. Beloved, I can't tell you how many times that's happened. And you know this, you who strive to be faithful, you know because you've experienced things like this, like someone coming to you later, and when, when they come back to you, they say, hey, you remember that day you, to- you rebuked me and you said what I had done was sinful and I got so mad and I stormed out. God changed my life that day. God changed my life. What did you do? I don't know what I did. I just, I just tried to tell her the truth. It was hard. It didn't feel like God was doing anything. I felt like I was there by myself. All I was doing was hauling water. And God was doing a miracle. Some of you this afternoon are going to take one of your children who is sinned, probably against another one of your children, <clears throat> and you're going to bring him to your room and you're going to talk to him and you're going to discipline. And you're going to think, I don't, you know, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to unpack the gospel here. I don't know if they're getting any of this. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure they're not. My exhortation, my brother or sister is, keep Paul in water. Keep Paul in water. Because one of these days, that boy's going to come to you and say, Mom and Dad, remember that day you disciplined me? And you're going to say, there were 10,000 of them. Which, <laughs> which one are you referring to? And they'll tell you and you'll go, no, I don't really remember that. Well, that was the day God got my heart. Changed me. Never been the same. Keep hauling the water Keep being faithful. Keep being faithful. That's all these servants did. That's all these servants did. You want to know what it's like to be used of God to accomplish something amazing? Don't try anything amazing. Don't try anything amazing. You're just going to embarrass yourself. You're going to jump into, into something before God thinks you're ready. And, and it'll, it'll, you'll have egg on your face or you'll hurt someone. Don't do that. One of the best pieces of, it, of, it, of advice I received as a teenager, or maybe I was in college, was simply this. Whatever you know God wants you to do, and a lot of times you're going to know this because the authority in your life is going to tell you to do it. Whenever you know that God wants you to do something, no matter what it is, you do it. Do it. And you know what? I've tried to live by that, sometimes didn't. But I can remember some days where I had an authority in my life 
Wasn't asking me to do anything wrong, anything immoral, but rather, to the contrary, something that might produce fruit for the kingdom of God and asked me to do it. And I said, in my heart, I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. I sang my way through college. They paid me to sing, to go to Christian schools and with some other guys sing and represent the school. And one of the professors in the school was a preacher and a pilot. And he said, why don't, why don't we do something together? Why don't, why don't you come with me where I preach and I'll fly and uh, get us there and you sing. And I said, okay. So we were in Alabama one time and we went to this airport. It was the airport in Alabama where the country group Alabama had their plane. And so there's pictures of them all over. But this little bitty airport was smaller than this chapel, way, way, way uh, smaller. I mean, like a, like a fifth, of maybe, maybe about the size of the Burns building. And we walked in, and uh, there's no tower. I asked him, how do, you, how do you know it's safe? And he said, well, watch this. We went out on the plane, and he got out on the runway, and he turned his wheel, and he started doing this. <laughs> and he's looking up into the sky. You see a plane? I don't see a plane. I think it's clear. <clears throat> <laughs> and that was, I mean, it was a really small airport. We walk in, and there's a lady behind the counter. She's the uh, airport operator. There's only one. And she's back there listening to the radio or something. And we come in, and here's a preacher and a singer. And I'm young. I'm, uh, I'm, I must be 21 years old. And um, we, w- we walk in, and, and he starts giving her the gospel. He's, he's kind of preaching one-on-one. And then he looks at me, and it's like, remember, preach, sing. <laughs> I'm the preach part, you're the sing part. So crank up one of those tapes you got and sing. And I'm going, here? Who am I going to sing to her, pet gerbil? I mean, there's only one person here. And he said, sing, Daniel, sing. And I sang, and I tell you what, it was the most humbling. I just felt like a, an idiot standing there in this empty airport singing to this one woman. And you know what? I have no idea how God used that except to perform the miracle of humbling me. And that may have been God's only purpose. I don't know. But the point of all of this is, you want to see God do amazing things? Be willing to do that. You'd be willing to do whatever God wants you to do. And when an authority in your life comes to you and says, you know what I think you need to do right now? You need to go in there and clean those toilets. You say, yes, sir. What we need is somebody to go empty the, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the diaper pails. Go do that. Yes, sir. To God be the glory. And you have no idea what God is going to use you to do. You want to, do some, you want to see God do something amazing through your life? And simply resolve to be faithful in the little things. Get up every day. All the water. Live in obedience to the Lord. It's not always easy. Sometimes it's humiliating. Sometimes it's just plain hard. Sometimes it's emotionally draining. Sometimes it's the funnest thing you'll ever do in your life. But no matter what, do it. Serve where he would have you serve. Let no task be too menial. A.W. Pink writes this, Christ's command to fill those six empty water pots of stone with water might have seemed meaningless, if not foolish. But the servant's obedience made them fellow workers in the miracle. Do you get it? They were co-laborers with Christ, and they didn't even know what he was going to do with it. 
You see, my friends, God uses the faithfulness of ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things for his glory and for your joy. And so moms, tomorrow morning, you're going to get up and you're going to feel like all you do is haul the water and the diapers and the spelling books and the peanut butter and the mop. And you're going to think, can anything good come out of this? Be faithful. See what God will do. It, it may, it's going to take years, perhaps, for you to see the fruit of it. And you won't see any fruit of it if you don't. Men, you're going to go to the office tomorrow and you might get there feeling like you're doing nothing of eternal value. Doesn't matter how you feel. God is building his church. You say, all I'm doing is building airplanes. Okay, so that's something a, a, a little lower on the ladder of God's redemptive plan. Nevertheless, you interacting with people, people watching you, people listening to you, people talking to you, God has put you there for them. God has put you there for his glory. Do your best at whatever God has assigned to you and see what God will do. Singles, don't wait until God gives you a husband or a wife before you get serious about being faithful, serving God. Listen, you are single now because that's God's plan. God has assigned you to that. He has a reason for your singleness. And you have freedom to do things that other people don't right now. And you're probably not going to be single forever, most of you. Use your singleness now. Be faithful. And don't have it in the back of your mind, well, one of these days, God's going to give me an opportunity to do something great. I'm going to be discovered. I'm going to, you know, whatever. You're not going to be discovered. This is the wrong church for that. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Nobody's going to want to hear on the radio what you sing here. But here's the thing. You have the opportunity to use your singleness in extraordinary ways. Just be faithful with the next thing. Be faithful with the next decision. Students, and I'm talking to college students, yes, but I'm not missing the lower end students either. Those of you who are children, and a lot of you are either going to be in class tomorrow or you're going to be sitting in front of your mother doing those worksheets again, whatever it is, and you're going to think to yourself, I don't see the point of this. I don't see any point in doing these dumb worksheets. And this math, nobody uses this math. I mean, who came up with this stuff? Pascal? Who was he? He created the vacuum. I mean, who cares? <laughs> or he didn't create it, I guess. But, um, and you're going you're gonna to look at that and be tempted to think, because I see no future application for this work, it's meaningless. And so I'm just going to get it done because my mom's going to get mad at me if I don't. Can I just give you a little revelation you may think that there's no application in the future or that God can't use that in your life. And for you, especially for your young men, you need to hear this. This is going to be a revelation. You don't know everything. You don't. You don't know everything. You think you know everything. You don't. Trust God. Trust the authorities in your life. And if you're at home doing your schoolwork or your school doing your schoolwork, it's your teacher or your mom. You do what you're told. And you say, God, I don't, I don't get how you're going to be glorified in this, but I'm going to do my best with it. I'm going to haul the water, and I don't like it, and it's hard work, 
Just be faithful and see what God will do. You know what Jesus said to his disciples in John 12? Verse 26, if any man serves me, my father will honor him. That's great. In the King James it reads, if any man will serve me, him will my father honor. I love that. And one time Jesus pulled his disciples aside and he said this, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. What a privilege. How did they get to know that? Because they were with him. They were with him. You want the privilege of seeing God do something great? Be there. You know why God, you know why Christ revealed himself first to the women at the tomb after the resurrection and not to the disciples? You know why? Because they were there. And the disciples were home talking about whether they should go fishing again. And the women were saying, let's go check on him. Let's go check the tomb. Let's go make sure everything's right. Let's take some anointing stuff in case we can get in and finish the job. Let's just go check to see if everything's okay at the tomb. And they were there. They were attempting to be faithful. They had no idea what God had done. And so do you want to see God use you to do something amazing in this world? Here's how to do it. Just be faithful with the next duty, the next decision, the next act of service, the next opportunity. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. It's not about making much of yourself. It's about making much of Christ in every act of service that you do. Be a servant. Haul the water and keep hauling the water faithfully and you're going to see God do amazing things in your life. To sum it all up, there's no greater privilege in this life than seeing Jesus use ordinary service to accomplish extraordinary results, to bring glory to God and extravagant joy to his people. Let's pray. Well, Father, this is a very simple message. No need for explaining Greek verbs or a lot of context here. You've just made it plain. And, Father, you are so faithful to us. Thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for blessing us. Thank you for using us. Lord, we are unworthy servants. We have no idea what you're doing through our lives. I would just pray, Father, for those in this room right now or hearing my voice who are doing nothing for the kingdom of God and who are being slackers at home or, or wherever, Lord, I pray that you would bring appropriate conviction that would lead to joyful repentance, knowing that you want to use them as you build your church, use them in their home, use them in their marriage, use them at their work. And oh, Father, I pray that Fort Worth, Texas would be a different place because we've been here representing you and serving you by serving other people. Oh, Father, make your glory known through us, your unworthy servants. For we pray it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.